Thank you, Jenny, for that. It's a good way to prepare for our thoughts for the morning. I'd like to urge you to take the Bible because uh, that's in the pew or your own personal Bible and have it handy to look up the scriptures that I'll be suggesting along the way, which are uh, a few in number pertaining to the theme of the season. But I'd like to thank you for allowing me to stand up here, and Pastor Steve as well. He, he trusts me. Um, he said, we're going to record your message, and I read between the lines, make sure that I don't do anything heretical up here or say something that is unorthodox in theology. I promise you I won't. I love the Lord and I love the Word, and that's what keeps me going in these late years of my life, and uh, one thing you'll notice, that my voice isn't as sharp and clear as, as Pastor Steve's, uh, like mine used to be, and now in my 80s, uh, that's one of the things I wrestle with continually. But nevertheless, be patient with me, and let the Holy Spirit do his work, and we will accomplish our purpose for being in the house of God today. Before I begin, I, I just want to tell you uh, this interesting story I found of all places in, uh, in a magazine called Reader's Digest. And uh, this young man, after the church service was over, uh, his name was Bubba, and he went up to the pastor and said, uh, I, I have a problem. And the pastor said, I can see you look a little distressed today. What's the problem? Well, would you pray for my hearing, Pastor? I'd be glad to. So the pastor cupped his hands around the ears of Bubba, and he prayed, Lord, you know, heal him, and etc. And then after he was done praying, he said, well, uh, can you hear better? And Bubba says, well, the hearing isn't until next Tuesday. <laughs> uh, well, it's the wrong hearing, but... That's the hearing I want you to pay attention to, that the, the distance between my voice and your heart, your ears, might be open to the working of the Holy Spirit. So may God's grace, mercy, and peace be with us as we turn to him in prayer and meditation. Father, we ask that you would bless the word to our hearts and our hearts to your word, that we may understand you better love you more, and then go forth to serve you willingly for Jesus' sake. Years ago, there was an old pioneer who journeyed westward across the Great Plains, and in his journey, he finally came to a halt, and he stared out across this great grand canyon, you know, one mile deep where he was standing and 18 miles across, and as far as he could see, to his right and left, all he could see was canyon. Wow. He didn't know what to say. He gasped, something must have happened here. And this is what Christmas is all about. Something happened here. Christmas. God happened. He stepped into our universe. 
that is our earthly environment. And he walked among us, and he taught us, and he died for us, and he rose again for our salvation, and he went to glory to reign there as the righteous judge eternally. Every year we come to Christmas season with all of its wonderful activities, with family, friends, church, and more, and we must conclude, like that old pioneer, something has happened in our history to bring all this about that we celebrate and enjoy. But if you ask Jesse Waters to go out on the streets, you know, from Fox News, who does street surveys, and if you ask him to ask people, what is this holiday all about? You'd get all kinds of answers, and most of them probably would be nowhere near the truth. We know the answer. Something has happened, and the Lord God has happened to us in time for eternity. He visibly stepped into this world as a human being and changed history. Very quietly in those first days of the first Christmas, he comes unnoticed, unrecognized, without fanfare. But, you know, cultural Christmas is very nice. We enjoy it. We participate in it. But it took some noisy angels to declare just to a, a special elite group. Well, were they elite? They were just ordinary shepherds, smelly, dirty, in the business of tending the temple sheep. And yet they sang the greatest anthem that probably was heard by human ears. Just think of unnumbered angels singing the Hallelujah Chorus. Well, maybe uh, our choir was not that angelic group, but they really sang a good Hallelujah Chorus last week, and I appreciate them very much. Thank you, Elaine and team. I don't know how many times we give credit to the choir, but they deserve uh, lots of credit for their ministry. But uh, not all the world hears those first UFO messengers, I call them, the original ETs of the Bible, angels from the realms of glory, announcing for to you and to all is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, we recognize that truth and we celebrate it as I've said. But first of all, I want you to look with me at the original promise that was made. It is found in Isaiah in chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, you may want to turn there, because <clears throat> I'll be focusing on that for a while. Beginning at verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. 
upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord of hosts, in case you don't know who the hosts are, those are the angels that serve the living God. They are out there bringing to pass what the Lord God, Jehovah, has ordained. Now, there's two parts to this promise. You see, first of all, the Messiah, the son to be born, is to reign on David's throne forever, eternally. And secondly, the nature of this Messiah is given in the four-part name of this son who is to be born to be a king and a government that is to be upon his shoulders as the regnant king of the universe. So let's look at these names first of all. The first name of the four is Wonderful Counselor. We see here that something is attributed to Jesus with the Messiah to be that is divine. He is to be the very spokesman who is the Holy Spirit himself. In John 14, 16, Jesus says to his disciples, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of truth. Now, while Jesus was there, the counselor was not necessary, for Jesus was the counselor himself. He is the wonderful counselor. And when he has vacated planet Earth and sat down at the right hand of the Almighty, Father and Son send the Spirit to minister through the apostles and all disciples who are yielded to him. The next name is Everlasting Father. Isaiah 64 verse 8 says, O Lord, and whenever you see Lord in capital letters, you should know that by now, it means Jehovah God, Yahweh, the great sacred tetragrammaton, Yahweh Jehovah. O Lord, thou art our Father. We are the clay. Thou art the potter. We are the work of thy hand. The ascription there is the fatherhood of God. And also the next name, Prince of Peace. Again, going back to John 14, 27, Jesus claims to be that prince. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as this world gives do I give unto you. So let not your heart be troubled let it not be afraid. Jesus is the giver of peace. He is that prince, if you please. And in these three ascriptions, you have the doctrine of the Trinity of God, Holy Spirit, Father, and Son. Now, I didn't see that for many years. 
Every Christmas I just read over that like most of us do. But here is a prediction, a prophecy in the heart of the Old Testament that gives us the very nature of the Messiah that is to come 740 years in the future to Isaiah. The Trinity, he is none less than God Almighty. That's hard to believe. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says that this Messiah is like the mighty God. Have you not heard, have you not heard the Lord Jehovah is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, who does not faint, grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. Don't you know that, says Isaiah. In other words, he is the mighty God in flesh. But Jesus didn't look like the mighty God. He looked like a man, and he was a man because he had stepped out of his royal robes of, robes of heaven, divested himself, and made himself to be a human being. He gave up his glory so that people could see him as a human being. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, St. Paul says that God has highly, uh, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Jehovah, is Lord. Well, I didn't see that either, or have you? That Jesus is none less than God in flesh, who has divested himself of glory in order to work out the plan of salvation for us human beings. What a wonderful truth this is to once again discern in this Christmas season. So our prophetic passage in Isaiah 9 also indicates that the Messiah is going to reign as a king. And that kingdom is to be eternally. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We acknowledge that. And we thank you for the hallelujah chorus that reminds us once again that says, Lord of lords and King of kings, forever and ever he shall reign forever and ever. Well, this uh, promise here in the Old Testament in Isaiah 9 says that he is that king. And when he was before Pontius Pilate, remember in his final day before he was crucified, Pontius Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And we read this in John 18, if you would like to look there. Verses 33 and following. And Jesus replied to the question, Yes, my kingdom is not of this world. Verse 36, And my kingship, if my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. 
And Jesus said, you say that I am a king, for this I was born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to this truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And what is the truth? Asked Pilate. And I wish Jesus would have answered it. Wouldn't that be great, Tim? If he said, this is the truth. But he didn't. He is the truth himself. He said elsewhere at another time. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but by means of me. I am the door. I am the access. I am the channel through which you must come into the presence of the living God. Well, he didn't explain that all to a heretic Gentile, the ruler of the region, Pontius Pilate. Now, I'm not here to argue theology or philosophy. I'm here to die for the sins of the world. So he didn't answer the question. But we know the answer to that question, don't we? Remember that he said, I am a king. For this I have been born. This has been ordained by Father God from the beginning of time, which is something beyond our understanding. Ephesians chapter 1 is another passage that tells us a little more about this king. The kingship of Jesus sometimes is overlooked. We look at his saviorhood and what he accomplished, but what happened after he ascended to heaven? Ephesians 1, verse 20. But I'm going to read in the Message Bible because I like it for this purpose this morning. But you can read it in the New International or whatever translation you have. Ephesians 1.20, God raised Jesus from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule, and not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all has the final word on everything. And at the center of all this, Christ rules the church, and so on. In other words, he is the king of glory with the power of the universe in his hands. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Jesus reflects the glory of God and bears the stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. When he made purification for sins, that's his death on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. There's the name of Jesus again, going back to Isaiah 9. He has inherited the nature of the triune God 
as he is, and his name is much more excellent than all the angels of heaven, says this passage. And he sat down at the right hand of God Almighty. And that's what the Apostles' Creed says, and I, I don't know if you've memorized that creed when you were a young person, but in that creed it says that when he ascended to glory, he sat down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from thence, from the throne room of heaven, from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. There's a day of judgment coming, and the judge is none less than King Jesus, who is king over that eternal kingdom. Well, here we see the promise that has been made. And now we go look at its fulfillment. In the book of Galatians, <clears throat> I should say that that promise was made in the 8th century B.C., roughly around the time when Isaiah wrote this, was about 740 B.C., and it was only 20 years after that promise was predicted that the northern kingdom of Israel was overwhelmed by the conquering empire of Assyria at that time in fulfillment of other prophecies in that section of the book of Isaiah. Nevertheless, the promise is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 4, as a passage regarding Christmas that sometimes is overlooked in this season. And it says there, by the hand of St. Paul, but when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons or children of God, that we might be included as citizens of the kingdom of God. That's why he came, in order to bring in the elect who are to be saved. Now God sets in motion his redemptive plan, and that plan is to free you and me from the condemnation which is rightly ours because we have broken the moral law of God. The Ten Commandments show us there's not a day that we can go or live without breaking one of those commandments in thought, word, or action. God sets in motion now his redemptive plan when Jesus is born. He's born in the village when the entire Roman Empire was under the edict of census as well as taxation. <clears throat> in a obscure village, in an obscure nation. He is born and set into a manger in an obscure stable. Well, the angels were overwhelmed by this event, and they couldn't keep their joy to themselves, so they sang out with joy on the birth of Christ. And the shepherds were there to hear it. And they were told what was happening. And these overwhelmed and starry-eyed, frightened 
shepherds. I can just see him with, oh, my goodness, what is happening? What's happened to us? And they run into the town inquiring. They find their object of worship. And then they share the good news up and down the streets of Bethlehem as well. So says the scripture. But uh, here comes the bad news. The bad news angel of darkness also heard those angels singing. And they trembled. What plan could we devise, these dark angels of Satan said? What can we devise in the way of a plan to stop this birth of Messiah? We will interfere with God's plan. Oh, the Magi of the East, they'll be coming. They're on the way. We know that. And they'll stop at Herod's palace because they'll be asking, where's this king of the Jews that it's born? <clears throat> and usually a king has a son or has children. Well, the Magi did stop, as you know. And Herod inquires of what's going on here and, and is very upset. And all of Jerusalem was upset as well at this news. And uh, so he tells the Magi after they finally discern that Micah 5.2 says Bethlehem. And Herod says, go and find this child and then report back to me so I can go and honor him. Well, his real motive was to eliminate any challenger to his throne. And he had done that already. I don't know how many he assassinated in the past, but he did. He was a brutal king. So uh, that was his desire, his intent. Well, angry Herod discovers that the Magi never would come back and had left town, had left Jerusalem. And so he says, by edict, all those under the age of two should be eliminated, all male children in the environs of Bethlehem. And he accomplished that feat, except for the fact that Mary and Joseph were warned in a dream to escape to Egypt, which they probably went to Alexandria, Egypt, where there was a large Jewish community in those days. What I'm trying to point out is that the spiritual battle is now engaged in earnest in history between Satan and the working of God's program of redemption. This is an interdimensional war. Did you hear that? This is a war between heaven and earth, and we're in the middle of that war. Wouldn't you like to see what God and his angels are looking at when Christ is born? If you allow me to pull the curtain back, or better yet, let St. John pull the curtain back so you can see into the spiritual realm. And he does that. The book of Revelation, chapter 12. Let me lead you through that chapter so that you see what kind of a war you are in, the church is in. 
each one of us as part of the church. We're in that war, Revelation 12. And St. John writes, if you didn't know, that's the last book of the Bible, easy to find. Chapter 12, and a great portent appeared in heaven. What's a portent? Well, the dictionary will tell you it's something that is momentous. It could be evil or other. But something of a portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. <clears throat> she was with child. She cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. And another portent, this one not so sweet, appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems or gestures of power upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars or angels of heaven <clears throat> and cast them to the earth. And the dragon, or Satan, stood before the woman who was about to bear a child that he might devour her when she brought it forth. This is the agent Herod, by the way, implied here. But she brought forth a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, that's a reference to Psalm number two, if you didn't know that. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, Jesus risen and ascended to glory. And then the woman fled into the wilderness of the world. Who is this woman? There are different theories. Some say it's Israel, some say it's the Virgin Mary, but it's the church. The church. Read on here. I'm jumping down to verse 9 for the sake of time. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels thrown down with him. And then verse 12. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, the church who had borne the male child. And the last verse, <clears throat> this is where the dragon was so angry with the woman that he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and bear the testimony of Jesus. This is why I say from heaven's point of view, you are in a war. The church is in conflict. On a personal level, this is how St. Paul puts it in Ephesians 6. You know that passage about the armor of God? <clears throat> he says, we're not contending against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly or spiritual places. 
This is the enemy, my friends. Well, the battle is joined, and you and I are in it. <clears throat> and Peter warns us that we should beware of the lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour, even Satan himself. Well, I share, you, I share with you this about the serious nature of Christmas. It's all not nice, you know, a little baby, manger, animals, shepherds, and wise men. There's more to the story than meets the eye. And I hope you see what I'm trying to say. Now, the promise is made to you and me. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, to you this day is born a Savior. He's for you. <coughs> and he has been born so that you might have victory over the devil, the world, and, <coughs> and, and your flesh. <coughs> so, <coughs> so will you bow in prayer with me? <coughs> Heavenly Father, watch over these your people and give them the strength to overcome the evil one in these days. Go with us that we might serve you well before you return once again. And if there's someone who doesn't know you here today as Savior, may they come to a knowledge of the great love, mercy, and grace that you have provided for us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. We have one more song to sing as we go forth, and may we keep in mind the many, many lessons that we learn as we study God's word and as we come and worship together. If you'll turn to, if you need uh, the hymn, it's uh, 598, or you'll have the words up on the screen. the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, hear my faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er before me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whate'er before me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread. Heavy grace for every trial, with the living bread Though my weary steps may falter And my soul a thirst may be 
face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you as you go in peace. Glory to God. Amen. Amen.